0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the aiconf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Alan Nickel, co-founder and CTO of Rasa, a startup which builds open source tools to help developers and product teams build conversational applications. If you recall, about 18 months ago, there was tremendous hype and excitement surrounding chatbots. And while things have quieted a lot lately, companies and developers continue to refine and define tools for building conversational applications. In fact, uh, Alan, Nickel, and Rasa are at the forefront of building such tools. So we discussed the current state of chatbots, specifically what types of applications are possible today and uh, how he sees chatbots evolving in the near future. And Alan Nicol will be part of a very strong set of Presentations at AI London centered around text, natural language, and speech. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So Alan Nickel, co-founder and CPO at Rasa. Welcome to the Data Show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Ben. So looking at your uh, background, you started out uh, using basically computer science and machine learning for scientific applications. But at some point, you became interested in language. So uh, when exactly did you get interested in language and uh, natural language problems?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I, As you said, I, I came from a science background. So I was working on uh, in physics. And then well, my PhD was about applying machine learning to problems in physics. And that had absolutely nothing to do with language or dialogue or anything like that. And then I met my co-founder, and that was in 2013, when I was still working on my PhD. And we just started hacking on some side projects. And one of the first things we built was a search engine. And we ended up starting a company around that and ended up failing.
0: Wait a minute, then. So I I take it, then, that you were never in the... Uh, you never strove for an academic career. You were always going to be in the kind of commercial startup world.
1: No, I wouldn't say it was always clear. I certainly thought about an academic career. Um, I was very seriously thinking about it when I was doing my PhD, and then when I started working on side projects that were kind of startupy, I never thought, I never ever would have thought that that was what I would do full time after finishing. But it just you know happened that way. Yeah, and then and then we built a search company, which meant that. You know, I got exposed to NLP and applying machine learning problems to, you know, language understanding and and recommendation and things like that. And then we kind of spiraled from there into eventually language understanding and dialogue, which uh, happened because we were we were playing with these systems and we were trying to build some. So we had some uh, actually in the early days of the Slack platform when you could first build
0: Slack pods. By the way, uh, what was the uh, the first company? It was a vertical search.
1: It was, a, it was a company called Treve, and what we did was we searched across all the different productivity apps that people used. So it was kind of like uh, if you have Spotlight on your Mac, it was like that for Chrome, and it would search all your Google accounts and, um, and Trello and all that kind of stuff. That's pretty cool. I need that. It's pretty neat. Uh, it's pretty neat. It seems like at least once a year somebody tries to build this product before they realize that it's not a, a great startup idea. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it was an interesting experience building it. And then after we started working on that, we, we were building some bots on Slack, um, just as little experiments. We actually had some paying customers uh, who were, you know, we were, we were actually building um, interfaces to... Uh, It's a SQL database. So you could say something, you know, it was, we had some products aimed at marketing people and they could say, oh, you know, uh, what was ROI on my Facebook campaigns last month?
0: Um, And we would turn that into SQL. So it was like a natural language layer on top of SQL.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, And then we really quickly discovered that nobody asks well-qualified questions like that. And they say something ambiguous and then you have to have some back and forth.
0: I've seen so many demos of things like that, being, <laughs> yeah. uh, having been in this space for so long. And the demos sure. usually work well because, yeah. uh, because they, they ask the right question in the demo. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and there are all sorts of hard problems around that. But the, the hard problem that we thought was really interesting was, um, how do you have a real conversation? And we just looked around and thought, look, there are really no tools. I mean, we're, we're two people here trying to build this, and there are no tools for us to do it. Um, so why don't we try and invent them? Um, and then that ended up becoming Raza, yeah.
0: Was the term chatbot in the air? Oh, very much so. Um,
1: yeah, so this was uh, this was 2015, I think. We were playing with, no, 2000. yeah, end of 2015, early 2016. Um, and then um, Facebook were opening up. Messenger as a platform. So, you know, first we were playing with Slack and then we saw that Messenger was opening up and that was when the hype really began for chatbots. And, uh, and then we wrote this post, this kind of provocative post uh, a couple of weeks before the F8 conference saying, look, uh, you know, nobody knows how to build conversational software yet. And just saying, look, you know, we've been trying this and uh, the things that everyone's doing don't work and this isn't gonna go too well. And well, I think that has sort of panned out that way. But that's been fine for us because we've been on the. We've taken the view that you know these are hard problems and they take a time, take a long time to solve. And I think we've made some solid progress uh, in the last two years. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's certainly not a solved problem. What's
0: the goal, Alan? Always to build kind of a tools slash platform company, or were you and Alex basically that you wanted to solve a problem and the tools happened to not exist?
1: Yeah, I would say we saw this ourselves and then thought. Well, we were working on these on these tools for ourselves, and thought, actually, this would be quite cool to work on and and build a company around and the first thing we did was start to open source some of the components and then do some consulting work around them.
0: I thought you so were gonna, we I, I you were like gonna, I thought you were going to say The first thing we did was took a look, uh, looked around to see if there were other tools.
1: <laughs> no, actually, we looked around a lot. And actually, where we really looked around a lot was in the academic literature, because we thought, you know, it can't possibly be that that these problems haven't been talked about. And then we discovered that there was this huge literature on spoken dialogue systems. And ironically, actually, a lot of it had been done in my old department where I did my PhD, although I wasn't aware of it at the time when I was there. Um, But that's actually one of the strongest groups on this topic. And we said, okay, well, there are all these awesome algorithms and all this cool stuff that people have invented. Um, but there aren't any libraries on GitHub that you can actually use to, to use any of this stuff, which just didn't make any sense. So we thought, okay, there's a lot of white space between the problems that academics are solving and the problems that developers have. And uh, you know, we can, we can try and fill that gap doing some applied research and shipping it into some code bases that are actually usable.
0: So let's take a step back for our listeners who aren't steeped in, in this area. So to build a uh, chatbot or a conversational uh, UI kind of application, what, what are the components that you need? What, what are the key parts of an application?
1: Yeah, there the are different ways to split it up, but the way that we split it is the first component is what we call natural language understanding. Which means taking a short message that a user sends or a long message, it's typically a short message, and then extracting some meaning from that, which means turning it into some structured data. So, uh, you know, in the case, uh, we talked about where we had a, a SQL database, right? And um, if somebody says, uh, you know, what was my ROI on my Facebook campaigns last month? Then the first thing you want to do is understand that this is a, a, a data question, right? And uh, you want to assign it that label that this is uh, a person. They're not saying hello or goodbye or thank you or something like that. They're asking a specific question. And then you want to pick out those fields to help you create a query. So you want to pick out last month and Facebook and ROI. Um, and those are the kind of the structured pieces similar to if somebody said, find me a flight from New York to San Francisco on Friday. Uh, you need all those pieces to find them a flight, right? So it's taking that freeform text and turning it into something that you can use downstream in your application. And then, so that's NLU or natural language understanding. And then the second piece is how do you, what do you do with that, right? How do you actually know what to do next? So how do you build a system which can hold a conversation which is coherent? And the thing that that you do is is you realize that very quickly it's not enough to have one. Input always matched to the same output, right? For example, if you ask somebody a yes or no question and then say yes, the next thing to do, of course, depends on what the original question was that you asked them. So, of course, real conversations aren't stateless; they they have some context and they need to pay attention to the history. And so, the way that you do that as a developer is you look. Well, I have a stateful thing, so let's build a state machine, which means that you say, okay, um, you know, maybe. I have some different things that my bot can do, it can talk about flights, it can talk about uh, hotels, um, and then you maybe define different states for when the person is still searching, or whether they are actually comparing different things, or whether they've finished a booking, Um, and then you have to define rules for how to behave for every input, for every uh, possible state you could be in and then how people are able to switch between those states by saying different things, right, by kind of interacting with the system. And the problem with that approach is that that approach does work uh, for building your first version, Um, but it really restricts you to to what we call the happy paths, which is where the user is compliant and cooperative and does everything that that you ask them for. Um, But A typical case is, you know, you ask a person, do you like option A or option B? And then you probably build the path for the person saying A, you build the path for the person saying B, and then you give it to real users and they say, no, I don't like either of those. Or they say, they ask you a question, like, why is A so much more expensive than B? Um, Or let me get back to you about that. And so there are kind of infinitely many ways that conversations deviate.
0: For uh, people who've used these chatbots before, the other annoying thing, Alan, is the kind of when your request is unsupported, right? So mm-hmm. you ask for something, and it happens to not be able to. There's no, it can't support your end question.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, and it's one thing if it just you know hasn't been built yet, but if it's just because you've expressed something, you've given information in a slightly different order, or Uh, you had a question and then want to return back to what you were doing, that's when it's especially frustrating when you know that it should work, but you've just gone off the guardrails a bit too much and that's why you're now kind of stuck.
0: So you're saying state machines are useful for kind of simple conversations, but they don't work well for... They don't
1: scale. That's the problem because you're a developer, somebody has a conversation with your bot, you realize that it did the wrong thing and now you have to go look back at your literally thousands or tens of thousands of rules and figure out which one clashed and which one did the wrong thing right and you figure out where to inject one more rule to handle one more edge case and that just doesn't scale at all so what we thought was well there's this huge asymmetry right on the one hand it's almost impossible to reason about all possible hypothetical conversations but on the other hand mid-conversation it's it's really really easy to understand if a bot did something silly right you can show your four-year-old cousin and hey, look, uh, you know, they would understand that that, that follow up doesn't make sense. So what we wanted to do was sort of use that and benefit from that asymmetry. So what we do with Rasa Core, which is our dialogue library, is we give the user the ability to talk to the bot and provide feedback. So in Rasa, all the, the whole flow of dialogue is also controlled with machine learning and it's learned from real example conversations. So. You talk to the system and if it does something wrong, you provide feedback and it corrects itself. So you explore the space of possible conversations interactively yourself and then your users do as well.
0: How does a user know to do that?
1: So the the end user, the end user isn't, it's not their job to like train the bot or teach the bot, but you as a developer, look at the things your end users are doing and you provide corrections to, to what the bot should have done instead. And. It's just so much more valuable. And this is one of the core beliefs behind how we build things at Raza is that real conversations are so much more valuable than hypothetical ones. And it doesn't make sense to sit with a flowchart and think through every possible conversation that, um, that might happen. It's much more interesting to learn from the conversations that do happen because they always surprise you.
0: On a high level, what exactly are you doing then, Alan? So you have input text and you apply NL- NLU. So in the old days, as you said, uh, you take the, the text that you've applied NLU to and then you pass it through a state machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now what, is, what are you essentially uh, doing now?
1: Yeah. So what, what we do instead is we uh, feed example conversations into a model. And the the dialogue model is, is a recurrent neural net. And it looks at the whole history. So it looked at everything that the system said, that the user said, uh, but also anything that was learned from the outside world. Right, So anything that uh, came back from a database or from an API call, um, all of those things get taken into account to then predict what's the correct next
0: action to take. So this recurrent neural network has memory?
1: Yes, exactly. exactly.
0: Um, and we're doing lots of exploration at the
1: moment, and we're writing some papers about different neural architectures uh, that structure the dialogue history differently and learn to pay attention to different parts of it. Um, And that's obviously a very interesting research topic that we spend a lot of time on.
0: Let's uh, move ahead then. So uh, basically now you have the input text, uh, Mm -hmm. which uh, there's an NLU module, and then there's a recurrent neural network, which serves as the dialogue model. So what else else is part of uh, RASA?
1: Yeah, so you then as a as a developer you de- you specify a list a finite list of actions that your system can take and in the simplest case your action is something like just sending a message to a user uh, but in the more complicated case an action is like a lambda function it's just a, a function to execute and so it can look in the database it can call an API it can you know switch on the lights or or check the weather somewhere um it's really up to you what you want it to do um and then at every point in the dialogue the rasa core predicts which next function to execute executes that function takes the the output from running that function and then helps it decide what should happen next right so for example if your action your first action is to fetch a user profile then you might the next action that's executed uh, might be different depending on if that's a premium user or a free user so you can instantly, you know, use that information to then decide what's next. Um, and again, that's just provided, it's, it's all of that behavior is learned from real example conversation.
0: Rasa, I must uh, tell the re- listeners, it's an open source project. And it's, uh, that's what's great about it. It's an open source project for people who are interested in building these uh, chatbots or conversational UI applications. So looking at. Rasa, so there, there's, uh, it seems like the open source components are Rasa NLU and Rasa Core. But but uh, my understanding, and so correct me if I'm wrong here, Alan, is that uh, uh, it's actually much, even much more modular than that, in that a developer who wants to plug in their own NLU or language or dialogue model can do that.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and that's by design. So those two steps we've completely decoupled so taking that short message and interpreting it versus doing the, the dialogue part and there's a few advantages to that so the first one is very practical which is that uh, Rasa NLU was open source at the end of 2016 um, and there was no Rasa core yet so there was no dialogue yet uh, at least it wasn't open source and so obviously people were using that independently of our dialogue system and then when Rasa core came out Uh, We obviously, we wanted to make it independent of the NLU system that people had, because people might have, you know, a very nicely working NLU, but still be interested in doing something more sophisticated in terms of dialogue. Uh, So they might be using one of the cloud uh, platforms and have an NLU system running, but then want to explore machine learning based dialogue. So we, we made it possible to mix and match there. It gives you a few other advantages. For example, if you want to deploy the same system in multiple languages, you can just swap out the NLU part, uh, but reuse everything else. Um, similarly, you know you can reuse the, the training data for the dialogue stuff. Similarly, you don't have to provide natural language input uh, if you're using buttons or other structured input. Uh, RazorCore can take all of that in. So it doesn't rely on there necessarily being a natural language input. It's at the point that RazorCore receives it, its already structured data.
0: Since you did the survey of the academic literature before you, before you uh, dove in and built RASA, so yeah. what is the state of the academic literature now?
1: Yeah, um, it's it certainly progressed in, in a number of ways. I think one of the big problems with the academic literature, or it's not really a problem, but it means it's less applicable to developers, is that it's a lot of it's focused on reinforcement learning and reinforcement learning is interesting which well, is super uh, cool it's, man it's obviously <laughs> super cool um and and it is very interesting um and it's a, a well posed problem that you can make good research progress on but that doesn't mean that it's the best approach for developers so if you want to do reinforcement learning you need an environment to run in right, right? and in the case of a dialogue system your environment is a simulated user right so if you're building a simulated user, a lot of the time what you end up doing is building your state machine in reverse because it's not just the user. Um, Because the user has to, you have to know, your environment has to know exactly what's correct and what's incorrect in dialogue. So the way that people get around that is either they build a relatively sophisticated simulated user or you're restricted to problems that you can state very precisely if there's success. So um, a typical case is I have a user who's looking for a restaurant and they have these three preferences. And if at the end of my conversation, I've recommended them a restaurant with those three preferences, then I get a reward. And that's obviously a sensible thing to do, but that really restricts you to problems that you can formulate that precisely in that exact way. And we didn't want to say to developers, one, this is the only kind of problem you can solve. Or two, step one of using Raza is to implement a reward function that, you know, uh, captures everything that your system should do. That wasn't a helpful first step either.
0: That's not going to fly with developers, right?
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so we have to build something that can can bootstrap from a few demonstrations, right? That can learn from just the first few conversations that you provide as a developer, and then quickly learn as more people engage with it.
0: All right. So let's uh, give a quick overview of the state of Rasa now. So, like, uh, how many contributors are there and how many downloads, GitHub, GitHub stars, stuff like that?
1: Yeah, it's something we've been thinking a lot about, uh, how to measure and what are the really interesting and important metrics. We're well over 100,000 downloads. We have over 150 contributors, and we count in that not just contributors who made uh, code contributions, but also people who wrote tutorials or blog posts um, or did other, made other meaningful contributions to help people uh, learn and use the Rasa stack. Um, of course, the, the great thing about open source is that anyone can use it without our permission. Uh, sometimes that's also very frustrating because I meet people every time I go to a conference. I meet people who are doing cool things with Rasa, and then I always wonder how many more of them are out there that I don't know about. Uh, especially, you know, people who would probably never get in touch about our commercial offering because they're building something for a charity or an NGO or for their personal pet project, and there's so many cool things that you just don't know about. So, you know, there's, it's a big challenge uh, understanding your open source community. We've just hired someone um, to do that. So we hired a developer advocate um, to help us like, understand our community better and how we can help them. And the really cool thing is we actually hired that person from the community. So um, I think that puts us in a good position to, uh, to kind of level it up and, and support these people even more. So what have been the most common use cases? interesting so some that you would think are obvious and some that you would maybe find surprising so customer support is obviously uh, always a big one so companies who are scaling up the number of you know especially some some of these fast growing uh like challenger banks and other fintech companies who they're seeing their user bases balloon but don't you know want to scale their their customer support team proportionately um, but we also see some really interesting, maybe less obvious use cases. So uh, Helvetia is a Swiss company, and they built an SMS chatbot that actually reaches out to customers whose home insurance policies are about to expire. These people have five-year policies, um, and this bot then reaches out to them and says, hey, this is uh, about to expire. Uh, has anything about your circumstances changed? You know, Maybe you have a new car or a new house, or you built an extension or whatever. Um, updates whatever it needs to update and then uh, gives them a new quote. And if they're happy with it, then uh, renews them. And even though this is an active outreach, uh, this actually has a over 30% conversion rate. And I think it's really cool because one, it's sales, which is very different to the cost saving of customer support. So that's already, you know, maybe uh, shattering a few myths. And then the other one is, is uh, demographics. So, you know, everyone thought that Millennials were the big chatbot generation, but actually, the first person to buy a policy with that chatbot was a 55-year-old Swiss lady, and I'm not, you know, I'm not sure anybody would have expected that that would be, um, you know, where some of the bigger commercial success stories in conversational AI uh, would come about.
0: Actually, so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is the state of chatbots. It seemed like, uh, as you pointed out, 2016 through mid 2017 was there was a lot of a lot of articles. Maybe the hype got way ahead of reality.
1: I mean, definitely, hype got way ahead of reality. <laughs> yeah, and so
0: and, and I think actually, so Alan, uh, so here's my here's uh, the way I think about it. Right, so uh, chatbots were kind of framed as uh, uh, kind of an example of uh, an AI application, but then uh, you know inherently it's uh, it's it depends on progress in natural language which is a hard uh, field to make uh, good progress on because you, you can even see right now uh, the, the limitations of deep learning in terms of natural language. And contrast that, for example, with something like computer vision, where it seems like you can build good products uh, with computer vision because the, you you can get by with, with products that can do, let's say, I don't know, uh, object detection or image classification or some some abilities, search through images and video. If you execute well, you can build a nice product around the current state of computer vision. On the other hand, I think chatbots, people forgot that the chat part of it was just the UI, but underneath it was natural language. And natural language, there's still a lot of hard problems. And so I think that because it was written up as AI and people started using these chatbots and they realized that, they were quite limited, right? So they, they couldn't they couldn't handle complex dialogue. So what's your take on the current state of chatbots? Is are are companies still excited about it? Are developers still building them? So what's going on?
1: Yeah, I think for sure the, the hype has, has died down in a big way. And that's that for us that's very good, you know, especially because we're we focus a lot on on applied research. We take the view that this is early in the space and a lot of it still needs to be invented. Um, that's also really cool if you're a developer, right? Because it's kind of like building websites in the nineties. It's like, oh, well, how is any of this going to work? Uh, you know, all these primitives still have to be invented. And so that makes it really interesting on the one hand. On the other hand, why does it matter? And I think, I think that's a really interesting question. I think a big part of the reason why chatbots attracted so much attention was because it was really hard to get people to download and still is. Very hard to get people to download apps, and so messaging as a platform to engage with users without that hurdle of buying an app, download app, uh, uh, app download ad, and stuff was just very attractive. And yet it was because the market was pushing and the technology wasn't ready that, that there was obviously a fair bit of blowback. But there's still we see a lot of, uh, of companies now achieving real results, right, and and meaningful, making meaningful progress on conversational AI and uh, and implementing it and of course without any of the magic ai uh, fairy dust and i think it matters a lot because it's more than just chatbots right why are why is conversational ai important for me at least i think a big part of it is about technology progressing and not excluding anyone or leaving anyone behind because if i think about my parents and my grandparents um, they had a much more limited experience of technology than, than I have. And I wonder how far behind I'll be uh, when I'm in my seventies or eighties. And so I think if all of us want to be included in the future and what's be going to be invented in the, the next half century, then we need to make computers meet us halfway, right? And, and help us engage with computers on our own terms. And part of that's computer vision and gestures and, and reading body language and all of that stuff but also of course a big part of it is is understanding natural language and having conversations um and so i think it's a really meaningful set of problems to work on
0: yeah and maybe at some point as uh as these language models and language architectures mature developers will just start you know how in computer vision a lot of people start out using i don't know resnet you know mm-hmm. uh, so there's something that you can start with and it's it's usable right? So it, it produces decent results, and uh, you can build a decent uh, application around it. So, uh, so But I, I think in many ways, uh, Alan, I don't know if you agree with this, but maybe with language applications, maybe the uh, the expectation of the end users is a little higher, because there's that kind of, uh, I don't know, illusion that you're interacting with something uh, intelligent.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, that's an interesting point. Um, and that could certainly be part of it. I do also think that uh, I mean, I'm not an expert on computer vision, but of course, yes, there's been a huge improvement in in performance on ImageNet, but that's certainly not saying that, it, that computer vision is solved. Oh no no, no, no. I mean,
0: in fact, there's all sorts of examples of how easy it is to fool these things, right?
1: Sure, adversarial examples, of course, are very interesting. Uh, what, what I loved was this medium post from the, the the people who built the not hot dog for the Silicon Valley TV show. I haven't actually seen the TV show, but I read the blog post. And I thought it was incredible, something which you would think is very simple, you know, detecting if there's a hot dog in a picture or not. And then when you take it out in the real world and you have a, you know, you have differing light conditions and angles and depth and uh, hot dogs in different conditions, it's actually very hard still even to do something relatively simple like that. And I wonder if part of it is just that, you know, there isn't, Natural language immediately makes contact with the real world because as soon as you give it to someone to test, they just say things the way they think about them and then um, there's no clean data set to test on. I wonder if that's at least part of it.
0: Yeah, and I think that as uh, natural language, the field progresses, then uh, uh, you folks building on top of those developments will benefit. Certainly, certainly, yeah. For those listeners who aren't, Steep in building these chatbot applications at a high level, Alan. How much training data, how much labeled examples do you need to get a reasonable chatbot that can do something narrow and specific?
1: Yeah. So on the NLU side, um, you can already do surprisingly a lot with a hundred labeled sentences, and it depends how many classes you put those sentences into, of course, but. Um surprisingly few, like a couple of hundred. Um, and really once you get into a couple of thousand for typical use cases, it starts to get reasonably robust. And on the dialogue side, it's actually similar numbers. So a few dozen, uh it's uh you can you know, a few dozen example dialogues, you can do uh you can do a few relatively simple things. You get into the hundreds, it starts to look better, and once you get into the thousands, and so it's really not anything out of anyone's reach. Of course, it all, that all makes the assumption that you haven't, you know, you've, you've made the scope of what you want to cover reasonably narrow. Um, but, but, but for, for, yeah.
0: for you folks on the, on the Rasa, the company side, you typically work with enterprises who already have troves and troves of examples, right?
1: Well, that's true. They have lots and lots of uh, customer service logs. And I think that isn't so much of a problem anymore, but maybe a year, year and a half ago, at the kind of peak ai hype maybe we would have companies say oh we have gigabytes of data so surely we can throw this at raza and uh, and it will learn all sorts of amazing things and of course if the data doesn't have any annotations then it's well not that useful so you can use <laughs> it for inspiration certainly uh, you can use it for mining examples of how people say things you can use it for Uh, Clustering and identifying the kinds of things that you might want to automate or or work on. It's certainly useful, but it's not something you can just, you know, oh, I have 10 gigabytes of data. That's great. Let me just uh, import it. That's um, unfortunately not, we're not there yet.
0: Which actually uh, brings me to the other point I wanted to raise, which is something you hinted at earlier, where the developers were kind of coaching the system. And now you give the example of uh, possibly domain experts labeling sample logs so uh, these systems are still kind of human in the loop systems right it depends on the
1: application so we have some enterprise customers where raz is running in their customer service center and it's just making suggestions um and the customer service agent has to you know give the okay um what we see a lot more is just that the the system is uh, automated by default and a human can intervene if things aren't going well um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of cases are, are fully automated and there's actually no human in the loop at all. But, of course, it depends on the use case and uh, how risk-averse the company is.
0: So to what extent, Alan, uh, are the systems that we see these days? So set aside Rasa, so Rasa is one system. But to what extent, as you yourself interact with these conversational UI applications, to what extent do you think they are based on machine learning? or are they or are they based on rules so in other words are they rule based systems or actually systems that learn
1: that's a very good question i wish i had better, better statistics for you
0: just uh, just make a claim yeah <laughs> i i would make a claim that
1: uh, well aside from aside from people using raza there's probably uh, a vanishingly small number of people who have any dialogue that's learned but then in terms of people using machine learning for natural language understanding i would i would suspect that's a very significant fraction maybe half i don't know
0: but the dialogue part your intuition is a lot of that is still rule based
1: yeah i i mean from what i see virtually everything that's not people using Rava is uh, is
0: rule based which actually is uh, is interesting because i think that if you talk to people in the self-driving car world a lot of the there's still a lot of rules Baked into these systems, right? Obviously, because they're life and death situations, you're not gonna just uh, throw away rules if they work, right?
1: Right, exactly. And the, there's a there's a, always a case for rules. And um, but the question is, can your system also learn from data, right? So a good example when you need a rule is authentication, right? You don't want a probabilistic model that samples whether the user the user is authenticated or not. You just want a hard rule: this person is or is not authenticated to take this action. And so. I think there's also an advantage of being open source is that people can implement rules and custom logic on top of the stuff that we provide because they don't have to, you know, take it as as it is. Um that's the great thing about open source. You can tweak it, tune it to your use cases, and get that extra performance out. I think this is a big benefit over the kind of closed source, you know, machine learning as a service APIs. They have to try and do well on everybody's data set, but you only have to do well on your data set
0: so Alan, looking ahead so uh, you earlier earlier you mentioned that uh, the academic community uh, who are working on these dialog systems are now focused on or at least a lot of the papers coming out use reinforcement learning so how how long before we start seeing some of this work this reinforcement learning based systems out in uh, in systems like rasa so if you were to if you if you were to guess
1: yeah no, it's a great question. We actually uh work very closely with academia um so we are currently supervising two master students uh, we have a number of ongoing projects uh running with different universities we collaborate with because this is uh, this is such a hard problem um yeah rounds of like from a software architecture point of view you know we could we could plug in reinforcement learning today. I mean we have some code to to play around with it uh the question is when Are the applications ready? When is the uh, deployment environment ready? When is um, everything else that's around it? So I think it's really not so much about actually the techniques. Um, I think the, there's enough good stuff out there. Exactly. Is it, it's productionizing and thinking about, okay, what is the reward function? How is it implemented? How often do you train? Uh, All of that stuff. And, uh, and I think that's, that's the bigger blocker than, Um, because there's so much good stuff in reinforcement learning now.
0: And uh, particularly, you're in a domain where you probably should take advantage of knowledge and structure, right? So one of the things that I've noticed that the reinforcement learning community is starting to become open to is uh, this notion of uh, uh, structure and models, right? So the model-based reinforcement learning. So in other words, if you kind of know... What, sh- what your environment is, then maybe you should bake that into your system <laughs> instead of uh, assuming zero knowledge, right? So. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think that's a similar point to my point about reinforcement learning more broadly, right? So learning from raw pixels is a really important um and a- valuable pursuit. That doesn't mean that if you want to build a great Pong player that you should learn from pixels, right? Like you should... Write in some of the things that you know about your domain. <laughs> like it's not, it's, it's not a crime, yeah. Uh, yeah, to, yeah, to use some domain knowledge to solve a problem, right? But I think that's, I think serious practitioners don't fall into that trap, but it certainly does happen sometimes. That and and end-to-end learning is also a big thing for dialogue systems. So that's that's a very important next step, right? So can you? So what I mean by end-to-end learning is that you can really just look at. Unannotated dialogue transcripts, right? And learn all the way from the raw user input to the raw agent response.
0: Man, you're um, going you're going to have to have a lot of data, right?
1: You have a lot of data, and you have to be sure that it represents exactly what you want to happen. Just because one of your agents said something doesn't mean it was the right thing to do, right? And um, and and so and you know, the the end-to-end learning, okay, it can be made to work. Uh, it, you know, there's certain things that are well understood that it can't do. Um, but it's still in a lot of ways very limited in terms of the vocabulary it can handle. And if you're really generating text, you're generating responses, which is necessary if you want to do this end-to-end learning, then I don't know if you've ever looked at English or pseudo-English generated by a neural network, but it looks like English, but you know, you wouldn't want to bet your house on it right. to generate a, a coherent sentence all the time. And so there's so much to be done again before that can be anything like productionized, right? there's just a lot of hurdles in the way. That that's not to say that it's not a worthwhile research pursuit because it's clearly so valuable if you can just learn from unannotated uh, transcripts.
0: So we're now in uh, kind of uh, the latter part of 2018. So if you were to characterize uh, the level of understanding among uh, enterprise decision makers for chatbot and conversational UI applications, their capabilities, their limitations. First of all, so so do people have realistic expectations, number one? And number two, who typically makes the decision to move forward on these projects? Is it the business side or is it the IT side?
1: Yeah, uh, they're both great questions. I would say, you know, finger in the air, three-quarters of enterprises we talk to have a a reasonable expectation of Conversational AI and what it can do, Um, and understand that it's not a magic bullet or you know magical AI. Um, In terms of who makes the decisions, I would say my sample is very biased uh, because over ninety percent of the companies that we work with who buy our commercial product, which is around the platform, uh, which helps if you have not just developers but you have a whole product team and you have an organization around it and you want to build a product uh, of conversational AI and not just a, a set of models, then. You know, ninety percent of the customers who buy that uh, the enterprise offering are already running the open source, uh, usually in production. So it's very much for us. It's very much uh, developer heavy. Right? We, we we get to know the developers. Um, then they're the ones who reach out to us, and then they you know move it up uh, within their organizational structure to bring about a commercial relationship.
0: So let's close with a brief description, Alan, of the next twelve months of Rasa. So for people who are using Rasa or are thinking about using Rasa, what's on the roadmap for the next 12 months?
1: It's a really, really great question. Um, We have a lot of cool research that's either shipped uh, but not documented yet or ready to ship, and there are lots of things that can improve on the language understanding side and dialogue side. So one of the big topics we've been working on is Making dialogue systems that can scale across different domains. So you've taught the system how to handle, you know, a, a difficult situations, deviations from ideal conversations in, in one domain, say a restaurant, uh, just as a toy example. And then now you want to add like hotel booking capability that you don't start from scratch, but you can do transfer learning across those tasks. We have lots of research going on dealing with noisy text and ambiguous text. We recently shipped a new version of browser NLU which can handle multiple labels per sentence. So that's a really interesting case where very often people send you a message and they don't just say one thing. Uh, They say, oh, thanks, yes, that's right. Oh, and by the way, can I do uh, X, Y, and Z? Um, So building models that can handle multiple labels per example, building upon that and dealing with slang and typos and noisy text. So uh, lots of robustness and scalability uh, improvements coming you know, directly from our applied research into the open source library.
0: Oh, so one one last question. So as of today, what uh, what languages do Rasa support? So everything's
1: written in Python, um, but everything exposes a HTTP API.
0: No, no, no. In, not, not, I guess not, not programming language, but... Uh, ah, yeah. human language. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The
1: NLU is hard even yeah. for people. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so we do, it depends. So we... Um, We have a TensorFlow based model, which can work with any language for language understanding. That said, we haven't tried it on every language yet, but we've tried it on a huge variety of different languages, um, and it works well. That one, you tend to need a couple of thousand labeled examples before it starts to outperform the, the word vector models. The word vector models, which was the original default in Rasa NLU, those you need like word to vec models for that language, so. Um, if there are good word vectors, which there are for many languages now, you can use it. It just depends a little bit. So I wouldn't say we can do every language perfectly. Uh, we can do every language a little bit, and some languages a little better than others.
0: Alan Nickel, this has been great. Thank you for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for all the great questions, and uh, yeah, happy to do it. You can follow Alan Nickel on Twitter, at Alan M. Nickel. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.